Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Today, we're going to address a big issue in business. What role do aging employees have in the future of work? There's really no question that we live in a society which venerates young people. Consider the example that world-changing companies like Google and Apple are setting, where the median age of workers is just 30 years old. So it makes you wonder whether they're telegraphing to the rest of us that workers in their 40s, 50s, and 60s have little relevance in today's rapidly changing digital world. My guest today brings a unique perspective to the issue and has encouraging words for anyone who has a little gray in their hair. He's found that many companies are realizing that qualities that come with age, like humility and emotional intelligence and wisdom, are in high demand in their workplaces. And they've begun re-embracing their older and more experienced employees who often possess them. For the first time in history, there are five different generations of people working together. And a few organizations have a head start in finding ways to optimize all of these age groups to ensure that they successfully interact, collaborate, and even value one another. And we're about to dig into all they've discovered. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Chip Conley, our final podcast guest of the 2018 season. After getting his MBA at Stanford, Chip founded a boutique hotel management company, Joie de Vive Hospitality, that ultimately had over 50 properties throughout California. And for the next 24 years, he was the company's CEO. Fast forward to the Great Recession, Chip then sold his business and at 52 years old was faced with launching an entirely new career. One day, Chip got a call from the 31-year-old co-founder and CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky and was asked to join his firm to both mentor Chesky personally and help him grow his emerging new company. So while Chip excitedly went on to become Airbnb's head of global hospitality, he quickly found himself in foreign waters. He reported to someone young enough to be his son, and his co-workers were all 20-something tech geniuses with whom he had absolutely nothing in common. So as Chip details in his new book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, it took some time to find his sea legs before he realized the profound influence he could have on Airbnb's young team. But he also ultimately discovered that all of his younger colleagues had much to teach him as well. How to succeed in a multi-generational workplace is the theme of our show today. And so a very warm welcome to you. Chip Conley. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, I really appreciate it coming here from Baja, California. We've never had a guest come from Mexico. And so to get started, Chip, I want to say that in reading your book, and this is an ancient reference, but I was reminded of this old Leon Russell song called The Stranger yeah. in a Strange Land. Yeah. Here, here you heard this CEO of a company you founded and led for 20 years, and then you get transported into an organization where everyone around you is much younger and possesses technical skills that you don't have. So tell us about your first days at Airbnb and what kind of internal struggles you contended with to make yourself feel comfortable. Well, thanks, Mark. I mean, it's great to be with you. To be honest with you, I came very close to quitting after about a week or two there. I had been brought in. I'm a longtime boutique hotelier and had been CEO of my own company for 24 years and then sold a, a company called Joie de Vivre. And then Brian Chesky, the young CEO of the company, approached me and asked me to become his mentor, but also to help Airbnb turn into a hospitality company. So what I originally thought was I was supposed to come in and just share my wisdom. I had no idea at the time, I just hadn't registered a, that I was actually joining a tech company uh, where the average employee was about half my age. 
it didn't register, number one, that I was going to be so much older. Number two was I was going to be in this not natural habitat for me. I'm not a tech person. I'm, in fact, a bit of a technophobe. <laughs> so the idea that all of a sudden I was thought I was supposed to be the wise one, and then I quickly felt like I was the dumb one because I had no idea of this language they were talking about in meetings was both disconcerting and scared me that wow, at age 52, I've had a successful career, but you know, wouldn't it be awful if I sort of ended my career flaming out in an environment that felt just very foreign to me? Well, this is perfectly understandable, and it comes through in your book, obviously. So you start off by saying that you almost quit. So what change of consciousness did you need to make within yourself to assimilate, to accept that this isn't quite exactly what you bargained for, and then transition into making you know, a really valuable contribution there? Well, I had to make a shift in my mind. And so it was like a mindset shift. I thought I was supposed to come in and be the wise elder, or the, not even, I didn't even use the word elder. I was more like just the, the mentor. And I realized that I uh, was both the mentor and the intern. And so when I realized I could be both the mentor and the intern, it helped me to feel like, wow, yeah, I can be the curious one in the room who doesn't understand something. I can ask some beginner's mind questions and I can actually, frankly, mutually mentor other people, meaning that I had something to offer them and they had something to offer me. And as soon as I did that, my fear of looking dumb or just not knowing the language helped me to, uh, frankly, I, I think become what I ultimately called a, a modern elder, or some people have called it a mentor, a mentor and an intern combined. Was there, you know, on a very human level, particularly you and your CEO, it's people are deferential, you know, you're, you started mm -hmm. the company, you're running the company, and, and now you're not yeah. the biggest cheese. So was there some ego adjustment that you needed to make? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Sorry. Um, yeah. No, I think it's illustrative for all of us, you know? No, it's very true. You know, I started a company when I was 26, ran it till about age 50 and grew it from one person to 3,500 people. So I had a lot invested in my identity. And my identity was Chip is the successful founder and CEO of the second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S. So I was still humble at times with people. So I wasn't just a complete blowhard. But I will say that my sense of identity was very attached to people seeing me as a the successful leader of an organization. And then I, I'm joining the three young founders of Airbnb who are anywhere from 21 to 23 years younger than me. And I was really the person behind the scenes helping to support them. And it was no longer my face on stage or you know my name in the paper. It was more like me helping to support them. And so I had to really right-size my ego and at the same time, it felt somewhat reassuring because it felt like I had less pressure on me. You know, when you're the, the face of a company, yeah, there's some ego gratification, but also it's with you 24 hours a day. And I really also appreciated that moving from the sage on the stage to the guide on the side helped me to actually have a little bit more freedom in my life to just be myself and not to feel like 24 hours a day. I have to be the CEO or the face of a company. I know this is going to sound sort of a crazy question, but do you have a sense that maybe you attracted this role into your life in order to grow personally, to mm. sort of balance things out a little bit? 
Yeah, that's a great question. No one has ever asked me that, Mark. That's a really astute question. I Yes, I think that the experiences that come into our life are often they're meant to be life lessons for us. And sometimes they're painful lessons, but the lesson actually you know, registers into wisdom over time. And I think in this case, yes, there was an element of me learning that I didn't need to be the face or the ego leading the parade. I could literally be the person who was supporting and feeling really great about helping these younger people become very successful. And let me say, they were really smart. So it wasn't like all of the wisdom was just going from me to them. I was learning as much from them as they were from me. Well, you set me up perfectly. First of all, thank you very much for the candor. I think somewhere along the line, we've all been in these situations where our identities are challenged. And I can certainly understand what you just described. And I appreciate the insight and the honesty around it. I'm wondering what wisdom... Did you pick up, and I'm going to ask you the reciprocal of this in a second, but what wisdom did you pick up that could help someone who has a younger boss really succeed? You said in your book that 40% of people are working for a younger boss already today. Yeah, and that number, 40%, will probably grow to 50% in the next decade. So in essence, in the next decade, half of us will have a boss younger than us. So what is it to be learned if you're an older person with a younger boss? And number one is don't treat them like your child. <laughs> you know, a lot of times people actually don't succeed in an environment with people younger than them because they come across as a parent or a priest. And that is usually because you're coming across as maybe sort of like a certain disrespect for the younger people. or A know-it-all. A know-it-all or seen-it-all sort of thing. And I think the idea of working with a younger boss is to be there for them to help them succeed and learn from them as well. So I think the key is to know that if someone's a young boss who's gotten successful, trust that there's some reasons they got there, but also recognize that they are not fully baked. You cannot microwave your emotional intelligence skills. And sometimes that's the area, leadership and emotional intelligence, where you can quite subtly help support them. I used to say at Airbnb, I intern publicly and I mentor privately. And that really basically meant I didn't mind being the dumbest person in the room, but I I sure didn't mentor people in public if I needed to give them some advice if they they chose that they wanted it. Were you the official mentor or where I'm going with this is if I'm working for somebody who's younger and I discover that they're not fully baked emotionally, how is it that I go about giving them wisdom, insight, guidance, coaching without offending them and without harming my relationship? Well, the number one thing is, you know, that I will say this later in, in our podcast, but I, I think knowledge speaks and wisdom listens. And so there's times when the person you're working with is younger than you wants to tap into your knowledge. And during those times, be very forthright about giving it to them. But often the thing that you really need to do is you need to listen and you need to listen not just to the story, but for the story, because what that means is that to the story means there's something literal that you're supposed to hear for the story basically means there's a thread or a theme that this younger person is not seeing. There's maybe a pattern that's going on here and your purpose, if they are looking for your advice, is to help them wear the pair of glasses that you're wearing that helps them see the pattern. Wisdom is truly about pattern recognition, being able to recognize a pattern. And the more wiser you are, the earlier in the pattern you are able to see where it's likely to go. 
And so the key is to just make sure that the person you're working with really wants your advice and you're offering it in private. So how do I cultivate pattern identification? Pattern recognition? You look at it in your own life. When I was going through a very difficult time 10 years ago, 2008, just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And what I learned about pattern recognition is that by each week making a list of the key things I'd learned that week, I did it on a Friday afternoon, um, helped me to start seeing the patterns. You know, pattern recognition can happen unconsciously because it's sort of baked into your knowledge. But in my case, 10 years ago, I decided to create a weekly ritual of outlining what I'd learned that week. And that's an alternative way to sort of help accelerate your pattern recognition. Because you're becoming so self-aware, it's easier to identify it in other people? Correct. In other people or in other situations. So sometimes it's the pattern recognition is not necessarily just in people. It's in a situation that's arising and you can sort of see it arise. It's almost like a surfer. You know, I, I just learned to surf recently and an expert surfer can look out at the horizon and choose which is the wave that they're going to ride. And similarly, an entrepreneur can do that as to like a trend in the marketplace. But a, a wise person can do that relative to a situation. They can see the wave before other people. As a brilliant example, and the reason I'm digging into this is because I'm very much an advocate for relying on intuition and feeling into people and sensing what people need in any given moment. And if you can identify the pattern, obviously, then you can give a proper response. So you've articulated that brilliantly. And I said I was going to ask the other side of this question, which is, what advice do you have for a young manager mm -hmm. who has you know, suddenly taken on a team of older people? So for a young manager, the key thing is know that if you've got workers, you've got people who are direct reports who are older than you, and let's say f at least five years older, because if they're just two or three years older, it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they're five years older or more, or in my case, a generation older, actually I was two generations older, Brian was a millennial, I'm a boomer. So the key is just to show respect, not reverence, but respect. And there's a big difference. Reverence means that no matter what, the, what comes out of the person's mouth, you sort of just give the reverence to that elder that you might give to a priest. That's not, frankly, very valuable or helpful in the workplace. But respect means that you actually listen. You listen to that person and try to understand whether they've got some historical knowledge that actually might be quite valuable to you. If they're only focused on the past, then you know, guide them a little bit to say, you know what, you need to be more relevant to focus on not just what you've done historically, but how is it relevant to the current day. So I think one of the key things is to show the respect. And I would just say the other piece is know that that person, that older person, in my case, me and Brian, may want some private time with you. And that will give them the opportunity to create a bit of a mutual mentorship relationship. And I, I think that that's important. In my case with Brian, sometimes it meant I really needed to have time with Brian to just ask him a few questions about tech industry or tech strategy. I was head of strategy for a tech company, but I'd never been in a tech company before. So that was an interesting phenomenon. And so there were times when I just wanted private time with Brian so that I could just ask questions that I might not have asked in a group. We're going to move into this, but I just prompts the question of how do you switch your mindset? Because I think back on when I was young in my career and I worked with people of very different ages, obviously people my own age and all the way up until they're, you know, 60s, getting close to retirement. 
And I would say in thinking about this, reading your book, that I'm certain that I saw older people as somewhat irrelevant, which is ageism. And, you know, just instinctively, because they were different from me, they were on a different path, they were going in a different direction. Mm -hmm. How do you change somebody's mind around that? In other words, someone in my former position as being a young person working with somebody who's older. You know, I think, and I've seen it a lot at Airbnb, I think the managers who are young, who are able to tap into the effectiveness of older workers, have a lot to do with giving that older worker the time outside of a meeting such that you can give that older worker some feedback. I mean, if you're their boss, part of your job is to give them feedback. But the other thing that I think that's really important is ask that older worker, how can I support you to do the best work of your life mm-hmm. here at Airbnb or wherever the job is? The reason that's such a powerful question, whether it's coming from an older person to a younger person or a younger boss to an older direct report, is it shows that you support their success. But it also puts them in the position where they have to get thoughtful about what is it that they need to be successful. And if you're an older worker, that's a great question because often an older worker feels like the deck may be stacked against them in some companies. And so it forces them to not be the victim of that, but to actually talk about what would help them succeed. Thank you. There's just simply no question that we're in this world that venerates the young and Yeah, you said something that I want to challenge a little bit, not challenge in an offensive way, but just really better understand it, which is that you believe that companies are now waking up to the value of humility, emotional intelligence, and wisdom that comes from age. And yet there's IBM that's being sued for letting Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of people go that are over 40. And you've got one of the major consulting firms, you know, basically just recreated themselves with 30-somethings. And... So tell us about that. Well, yeah, there's no doubt that the business world is revering DQ, digital intelligence. And this is why power is cascading to young people faster than ever before in the history of business or organizations. And it's great. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to, to say that's a bad thing. But here's the challenge. With this power moving to younger people faster and faster, we are almost expecting these young digital leaders to miraculously embody the relationship wisdoms, leadership skills, emotional intelligence. Those who are older have had decades to learn. So my premise is this, is thank God for the millennials, thank God for the digital natives. They're helping to chart out and pioneer the future of business. But to imagine that they can do this without having and I'm not going to say parental supervision or a grown-up or a gray hair or anything like that because it's disrespectful, but to have people who have experience, good judgment, and wisdom by their side to help support that process just makes sense. And you, you, know, you see companies like Uber that basically, you know, thank God for Uber that they have a business model that's so strong that they could have just frankly awful management and leadership for a few <laughs> years there that was quite youthful. I mean – Frankly, Travis is not a millennial, he's a Gen Xer, but he operated as if he was incredibly immature in his leadership. He could have used a modern elder, so to speak, embedded in the organization to help support his process of getting smarter as a leader. Instead, he ended up being ousted. So I just think that you know what we're seeing, especially in the venture capital and private equity world, they still believe in these young founders as the saviors you know, that are going to help 
create a bright digital future. But they're starting to get smarter about the fact that just because someone is a technical expert and they have a brilliant idea doesn't necessarily mean they actually have fully baked leadership skills. And that's how they start looking at how do we actually create some cognitive diversity on a leadership team. Some of that cognitive diversity relates to having people of different ages. So do you believe that ageism could fall away? In other words, as companies become more enlightened around the benefits of having not just young and old, but multi-generational workforces, that that's actually a strength? Do you see that? Or do you think we're just going to be sort of doing our best to... I think there's a few variables here. First of all, let's recognize we have five generations in the workplace for the first time. have an unemployment rate moderately below 4% and a growing resistance to immigration. So there's a a sense like, okay, in order for us to succeed, we're going to have to tap into generations like we never have before. So I do think it's only smart to imagine how do you create a multi-generational workforce. But it takes two to tango. And what I mean by that is if older workers aren't willing to actually try to make themselves more relevant and be lifelong learners, be curious and be open to having a younger boss, then that cohort, people my age, I'm 58, are going to have a hard time justifying being in the workplace because they're going to be operating from a point of view which is maybe 25 or 30 years old. And so I think that that's a key is that ageism will start to go away when it gets smarter and smarter for businesses to operate with a multi-generational workforce. But that only makes sense if people who are in middle age and beyond are open to be a lifelong learner. I think that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And so I guess my question then becomes, if I am an older worker, and by the way, you know, we're all aging (laughs) I've aged 23 minutes so far since our conversation, <laughs> you know. Thank God, so, thank God it's not like 75 minutes, you know, in 20 minutes. You know, it, it would be painful if you said, you know, you'd, you'd aged faster. Exponentially, yes. I don't want to impose that on myself. It's already happening fast enough. But, you know, as we all think about getting older, we start to have this fear about, you know, am I easily replaceable? Am I going to become irrelevant? And, you know, so what do you see? What roles do you see older workers performing in the coming years. Peter Drucker coined a phrase or a term in 1959 called the knowledge worker, because what he could see was the future. The future is all about computers, and the future of business was going to be full of knowledge workers. Well, I actually think it's time we potentially retire the term knowledge worker, even though I'm a big fan of Peter Drucker, partly because we're all knowledge workers now, and frankly, most of our knowledge is in the cloud, <laughs> or it's you know in, in Google. So you can go get your knowledge from, from that other source, but what we could use is more wisdom workers. And just like none of us actually on our business card says we're a knowledge worker, no one's going to have a business card that says wisdom worker. But there's going to be a growing value for bringing people into the workplace or into leadership teams, let's say, who have a certain strategic and leadership experience such that the good, that good judgment um, serves the organization. They could be like an internal consultant. They could be an internal coach. Or more often, I think they will just be someone who's filling a functional role. For me, I was the head of global hospitality and strategy at Airbnb. I wasn't the wisdom worker. I wasn't the modern elder. But that was the collateral benefit the company got out of having someone who was much older than most of the people in the company. So I just think there's going to be a growing sense that whatever your functional specialty is, the collateral benefit is there's an invisible productivity that happens when you get someone who's older and effective 
in that they help not just be effective and productive themselves, but they help teams be more effective and they help those around them actually get better at what they do. One thing just to ring the plug bell for older people, if you will, I just read that I think it was Harvard and UCLA research that shows that our short-term memory really does start to decline early in life, like in our 20s. But the cool thing is, is that our long-term memory, meaning knowledge, the wisdom that we acquire, for all intents and purposes, really never dissipates. All the way through middle age, it continues to grow. And then if it declines, it declines very insubstantially. So there's something to be said for living a little bit longer. You do have some knowledge that you can pass on. So I found that very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You used this word modern elder a few times. So why don't we go there and tell us what this means and why it's an important career path. The intention is to sort of mold ourselves into being modern elders. Well, yes. And I didn't go to Airbnb thinking this is what was going to happen. But at some point, Joe Gebbia, who's one of the co-founders, uh, and I had a conversation and we just sort of realized that that was sort of my role. The traditional elder of the past was regarded with reverence. But what I believe is different about the modern elder is that they're appreciated for their relevance, not for their reverence. And the relevance comes from the idea that they are as much an intern as they are a mentor. And what that means is that a modern elder is somebody who can take their timeless wisdom and apply it to modern day problems, partly because they're relevant enough to know what modern day problems they're trying to solve. So at Airbnb, that meant that I was occasionally this very curious soul who has a bricks and mortar hospitality background, but could apply it to a tech company that was actually providing hospitality through our hosts around the world. So I guess the point of all this is to say that the modern elder is somebody who is constantly learning, but at the same time, tapping into the pattern recognition and good judgment from the past that helps them to apply it their current situation. It's going to sound like a crazy question, but it really has to do with anchoring on who you are or who you feel you need to be. So in terms of being this modern elder, did you find yourself inclined to wear hoodies or were you true to, you know, whatever identity? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I think, you know, it's interesting. I was recently talking to uh, one of the best executive recruiters in the world and, and I was saying, you know, how do you think people who are over 50 should present themselves as potential employees out there. So how do they present themselves in the recruiting world trying to get hired? And I said, you know, it's harder and harder. Should they just change their wardrobe, et cetera? She said, no. She says, this is paraphrasing her, but she said, curiosity and passionate engagement will actually help your wrinkles disappear. And And what in essence she was meaning was, You don't have to try to look younger, although in some workplaces you may feel like you have to. You have to be cool and relevant enough so that you can sort of understand the cultural references on occasion, but that's not why people want you there. You're not there to actually have cultural references conversations. What you're there for is your curiosity, your passionate engagement, your knowledge, and the fact that people see you as a great team player. One thing that's interesting about us as we age is, yes, our brains slow down, But the flip side of that is we get better at the tango between the left and the right brain. So we actually can have holistic thinking and get the gist of something faster. So there's that. There's also the sense that our EQ, our emotional intelligence, grows as we age, which means we can be better collaborators. So at the end of the day, I don't think it's all about trying to act and look 20 years younger than you are. 
yes, you need to be relevant enough so that you can hang out with people who are different age than you. But at the end of the day, the reason you're there and potentially successful is because you are older and you actually have something to offer. And this is not just my story. There are lots and lots of people who I cite in my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, that you know are mid-level people who are actually have proven that. Very glad I asked that question. And it makes me think when you were talking about you know some of these these startup companies with these genius people who have these wonderful innovative ideas and yet they don't really have the experience of running a company or even managing people with much significance. And so my question is, has any company you're aware of ever thought to, you know, intentionally invert that career path, meaning putting more of these modern elder people into manager roles so that they have a the ability to coach less experienced employees and mentor them into becoming more wisdom-filled before they become allowed to supervise people instead of just putting them in and letting them figure it out and doing harm along the way? How about letting people more experienced do it first? There are a lot of companies that have done that. I mean, in fact, let's, let's recognize that historically that's how it's been done. I mean, there was sort of almost an apprenticeship program in consulting firms or law firms or you know, architecture firms. But in modern day, how do we see it? Procter & Gamble for 50 years has had a program called their mastery program. And the premise behind that is if you have been in the company for 10 years, you can apply to become a master, which means that your role as a master is you get embedded in different teams, but you're seen as an internal person with institutional wisdom. And part of your role is to tap into some of the historical successes as well as failures of Procter & Gamble and apply them to current business opportunities that you're considering. These masters are also people who help acculturate new employees in the company. They also are helpful when a team is struggling. This person could come in and, and help sort of catalyze that team with some new thinking. So Procter & Gamble's a big, you know, Fortune 500 company has been doing this for 50 years. So I actually think more and more companies might look at that. There are some companies I've talked to who said, let's use the Google method. Google has a program where their engineers are allowed to allocate 20% of their time, if, as long as they're approved, to entrepreneurial projects they think would be helpful to Google. Why don't we do the same and say, you know, if you're someone who has some institutional wisdom, What if you were to say, I would like to be able to reduce my scope of work by 20% so I can be an internal mentor or an internal coach or an intern? And of course, you'd have to train and be successful and effective at that. But I actually think we're going to see more of that over time. American companies spend more than a billion dollars a year on external coaches. And I think that whether that's good money spent or bad money spent, I'm not going to bring that up. But what I will say is actually having internal coaches as opposed to external coaches is an alternative way to accelerate the process of wisdom transfer to younger people. The Procter Gamble example is absolutely fantastic, something I've not heard of before. And I love that there's the inherent valuing of tenure and really deep down the valuing of institutional knowledge and passing that on and sustaining culture and making sure that people know what the norms are. I, I think that's wonderful. But the idea of calling someone a master is something that they earn, but something that they earn over time, I think is just brilliant. So I'm really glad I asked that question too. So what are other highly effective ways organizations can successfully blend employees of multi-generation so that this aging is a bad thing paradigm is reframed 
into a way that everyone in the company fully understands that regardless of age, everyone has value. Sure. So Mark, chapter nine of my book, it's ten, there's 10 chapters, is pretty much a prescription for this. There's 10 different specific things I recommend that companies consider uh, to actually help to create more of an age-neutral workplace or to actually tap into wisdom. But, you know, a few examples could include, you know, we, we're getting better as a society and with companies in looking at how do we create diversity in the workplace. But only 8% of the companies that actually have a diversity and inclusion program worldwide have actually expanded that diversity and inclusion program beyond race and gender to include age. And so I would say one, one thing to start looking at is how do we evaluate age in the workplace? Now, in an older school company, this is less of an issue because you already, you know, you already have a lot of diversity of age. But in a younger company, really important. Some companies are starting to actually look at what's the um, diversity on teams, gender, race, et cetera. Well, maybe age should be considered there too. I think a question that any company should ask in its employee satisfaction survey is outside of your boss, who in the company would you go to for wisdom or advice? And then start to measure where are the pockets of wisdom in your company and what is it that those people are doing that are best practices such that you can tap into those best practices. At one point, I was mentoring informally, not because I hung up a shingle, but just because people came to me. I was mentoring over 30 people at once, and that was outside of my normal work. Now, I was often meeting with most of those people once a month, but some of them are as much as once a week. Well, I wish the company, Airbnb, had known. Brian knew because I told him, but I wish they'd seen that there clearly people were being drawn to me, and I'm not saying that from an egotistical perspective, I'm saying it from the perspective that people are often drawn to wisdom. So companies then need to understand where are these wisdom hot pockets where people are drawn there, and then how do you tap into that? Or how do you help someone like me say, okay, I'd like to reduce my workload by 20% so I can actually have a more functional ability to help support a lot of these younger people who want my advice on something. So I just think those are the kind of thinking that we need to have moving forward. And I like the idea of breeding more of them because obviously you had the star power of coming in in that role. If you're mentoring Brian, then you're going to be, you right. know, who's not going to want to be a part of that, right? Taking nothing away from the expertise. No, exactly. and, you know, this is why I love this idea of a master because <laughs> it's just such a powerful term. And if you can earn that and treat it with respect within the organization, then those pockets of wisdom can be expansive throughout the organization and you just don't have them in one department or one building. You got it. So yeah, yeah. very powerful. Thank you. You say that bridge building between generations is most effective when it's baked, and this is your language, into a company's values and culture, which is something I deeply believe mm -hmm. and not unlike an arranged marriage, you know, where it's sort of forced upon you. So mm -hmm. if you were running a big company today, how would you go about accomplishing this? The number one thing I would look at is how are we encouraging mutual mentorship? 20 years ago, Jack Welsh at General Electric encouraged reverse mentorship because what he realized 20 years ago is that his senior executives knew very little about the internet. And so he created reverse mentorship so younger people were teaching older executives about computers and the internet. So that was a fundamental decision he made that ultimately led to reverse mentorship in many other companies. Well, today, you know, we, we know about mentorship. 
which often has been sort of older to younger. Reverse mentorship was younger to older. I think the future is mutual mentorship uh, going in both directions. And you can either formalize it or you can look at how informally you are creating the environment to do that. One thing some companies have done is to create Skillshare days or half days where an employee can say, I know a lot about this subject or I want to learn a lot about this subject. And you figure out a way to help match people based upon their interests or their skills. And so I just think more and more we're going to see companies looking at ways to create that kind of matchmaking often across generations. In the last couple of days, I read a couple of articles about the workplace culture at Netflix and you know the brutal candor meetings where people go out to dinner and sort of slay each other with with every possible criticism in order to get them tougher and better and then it's the survival of the fittest and you get fired if the idea crossed your mind that if you were to quit and i can't say to myself that i wouldn't want you to quit then i'm going to fire you i mean these are sort of crazy in my mind yeah. but this is a thriving company with a stock price that's gone completely through the roof where 87% of people working there love working there and so it sort of spins my head in terms of my own philosophies on leadership so i'm wondering if you can speak to that and tell us what yeah. what are the top attributes of cultures that you most admire Well, let's start by saying there is no right culture. There is a right process for helping to create culture. So what might work at Netflix might not work at Facebook, or it might not work at Procter & Gamble. So the key is, are companies being conscious and intentional about their culture, and are they doing a great job of getting the message out there? Because Netflix is a very competitive culture, as is, say, Oracle. What you want to do is make sure people who are interviewing understand that. And if they understand it, then you're hiring people who are going to thrive maybe in that habitat. So I think that's one key thing. For me, one of the organizational cultures I most admire, I think cultures that tap into people's passion and have a democratic enough culture so that people feel like they can contribute and they understand how their contributions affecting the organization. To me, that's really important. I think companies that are open-minded about where the future's going, and they're not too rule-bound, and they're open to making mistakes. That's really critical in order for innovation to occur. And I think just you know t- being able to tap into diversity. And to me, the diversity, we get pretty wrapped up in the demographic diversity piece of it. And I think cognitive diversity is what's most interesting for the future. Mm. And cognitive diversity often does have something to do with your demographics, but it doesn't have to. And I think we're going to get smarter about this in terms of don't you want like an introvert and don't you want sort of a a systems thinker and don't you want someone who's actually an intuitive, natural intuitive on a team because that collection of people is going to sort of help to make sure you don't have groupthink from a cognitive perspective. Wonderful. I'm glad I asked that question because you've been exposed to so many different cultures, particularly recognizing that you had your own and then you saw what was in the tech world. So I'm really looking for what you think are what's going to draw out the best in people. And I think that's what you underscored. So thank you. We're going to change gears here now for a moment, Chip, and move into a segment of the podcast we call the heartbeat round. Surprisingly, I get a tremendous amount of feedback around this and people in our audience are really interested in learning more about our guests and their personal philosophies and how they were shaped and formed. So I have a series of short answer questions I'd like to ask you. And basically I'm going to 
give you a question and answer each one in a heartbeat. Are you up for it? I love it. Yep. Okay, cool. So number one, most enlightened and effective business CEO of all time. That's tough, but I would say Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines. He was CEO for 37 years from early days. And the reason I would cite him is because the airline industry is a difficult business. And Southwest Airlines was the second most unionized airline in the U.S., which a lot of people didn't know. And yet, with the difficult business and being very highly unionized, he was able to create a really strong, robust, can-do culture that led, during his tenure, to Southwest Airlines having the highest stock market growth of any company for a 10-year period while he was his CEO. He also used to say, the customer comes second, it's the employee that comes first. And I really appreciated that in a service business. Me too. And I, I, coincidentally, and this is supposed to be rapid fire, which we've blown up in a first question, but, <laughs> but um, I was just on a Southwest plane that was delayed for five hours just a couple of days ago. And the way they handled it was beautiful. It was just the execution. You could tell these people are cared for. And then I had the A1 seat ticket. So I walk on the plane and I'm staring at this big heart. You know, so this is an organization that truly cares mm -hmm. about people and puts people first, which is pretty much the philosophy of this show. So great example. Number two, three adjectives that best describe him and his success with other people. So Herb Kelleher. Visionary, vulnerable, and open-minded. Your go-to activity when you're seeking rejuvenation. Running on the beach. One or two books that helped shape your leadership philosophy, even though they weren't written as leadership books. You know, there's a book written by Viktor Frankl based upon his experience as a psychologist in a concentration camp. I mean, he was a Jew who was a psychologist who ended up in a concentration camp. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And that book, to me, speaks so much about the value of meaning in our lives, but also about the value of leadership in terms of understanding how do you tap into meaning in other people. A second book would be the book that really helped me get my company started, which was Growing a Business by Paul Hawken. One hotel in the world everyone must visit once in their life. <laughs> <laughs> the Ice Hotel in Sweden. I did that two, two years ago. It's like a crazy experience. I've seen pictures of that. Not yeah. what I expected you to answer, but it's great. No. <laughs> the quality you most admire in other people. Empathy. Being able to understand the other person and be able to be in their shoes. Quality you least admire in other people. Probably narcissism, because it means it's all about you. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? The Sunday New York Times, I go and ride a bike at the gym and I read it pretty much every Sunday. The life lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life? That my identity or who I am and my self-worth doesn't have to be defined by my achievements. Hmm. Meditation practice, yes or no? I feel lucky on this one, yes. 35 years of meditation practice, trying many different things and doing many extended day silent meditation retreats. Favorite band or singer? Mm, so many choices. I'm going to say Amy Winehouse. Rest in peace. R.I.P. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? A lack of EQ. Just not having emotional intelligence and understanding yourself and others. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Learning to let go. I've spent my life attaining being an achievement junkie, and I'm learning how to attune myself a little bit better, which means harmonize myself as opposed to just be the type A, go for it person that I've typically been. Your favorite guilty pleasure? Chocolate, chocolate, <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> oh, sure. That's why they call me chocolate chip. That's hilarious. 
and one piece of wisdom that could change all of our lives. Well, I said it earlier, it's knowledge speaks and wisdom listens. And there's a reason that the owl is perceived as the wisest animal or bird in the forest. And it's because it has the most attuned listening skills. So while you know knowledge is important, it's usually something that you speak about, but wisdom is often about listening. Not just listening to other people, but listening inside yourself. Wonderful. Thank you. Excellent answers. And I'm really glad we asked them of you. And I have saved one final question for you, Chip, and it's really more about turning over the floor to you and giving you the opportunity to share some final thoughts. So I'll frame it this way. Mm -hmm. What's something that we haven't surfaced yet in our discussion that could really help our audience successfully prepare themselves and the people they lead for succeeding in a multi-generational workforce? Sure. In the process of writing my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, I interviewed over 150 people in midlife. And what I really recognized was how many people are full of anxiety and bewilderment because they're feeling like power is moving 10 years younger and they're going to live 10 years longer. So there's like this irrelevancy gap that's been created. So I ended up creating this place called the Modern Elder Academy, which is online at modernelderacademy.org, which is a social enterprise, which means half the people who come are on scholarship, where we bring people in midlife here to help them navigate their midlife transitions, whether that's their career or their marriage or relationship, or just their sense of identity of who they are. And it's been phenomenally successful. And so we are now starting to look at multiple locations because the truth is the way we've historically operated is the three-stage life, which is you learn till you're 20 or 25, you earn till you're 65, and then you retire till you die. And that model is basically evaporating or disappearing. And instead, we're going to be lifelong learners. So my intent here was to create the world's first midlife wisdom school where people in midlife tapped into the wisdom and mastery that they've created up to that point in their life and then thought about how they can repurpose it, repurpose it elsewhere in the world. Do you, just to dig into this a little bit, you know, I left a big career and then decided I was going to write a book and in that process of not having an identity and not having a book, right, until it was actually done, mm -hmm. the difficulty for me was living with the ambiguity of who am I in this moment. And do you deal with that? Do you help yeah. people mentor them around? <laughs> that is exactly what we deal with. It's really about how do you help people with the first lesson in my book, which is evolve, which is quite often our identities are almost like name tag stickers that we put on ourselves and we can't take them off. And then we end up with a collection of name tags on us and sometimes being a little bit confused by who we are. And much of the way we see ourselves in our identity is a function of what we've done in the world work-wise. So that's exactly the first day and a half of our work together is only on that, is how do you help people evolve out of the historical identities that they've had that they're ready to shed. Glad I asked that question. Maybe you should join us, Mark. I mean, I'm not that far from you, actually. I'm in San Diego, so I'll have to fly yeah. down and see what you're up to. You know, I want to say that every time I've done one of these podcasts, I think this is like number 18 or 19, and I just have this profound sense of gratitude because the insights that are shared, the guests that I have are just there's just something uncannily wonderful about it. And this is just another one. So I just want you to know how much, and on behalf of our audience to say, 
thank you for all the insight. This is your life's work you just shared with us over an hour. And we're really grateful. I'm especially grateful. So thank you for doing this. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity. So uh, good luck with the way you're helping the world get wiser in what you're doing. Thank you, sir. Go teach your class. All right. Thanks, so. Best to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As we close, I want to remind you that this is our last podcast for 2018. So I invite you to become a subscriber so that new episodes that come out in January will come to you directly. And I'm excited to say that I'm going to be using most of the month of December as a personal sabbatical. For the first time ever, I'm going to get to see Charleston, South Carolina, where my mother's family have had roots that go back centuries. And after that, I'll have time to renew and contemplate the new year in Monument Valley, Arizona, before visiting other stunning sites in the American Southwest. In the meantime, I hope you'll make time to listen into any of our podcasts you may have missed. I've been honored by the extraordinary guests who've joined us so far and know you'll find great wisdom in every episode. And if you're looking for a book to read over the holidays, ring plug bell now, <laughs> I invite you to check out mine. Leaf from the Heart is now being taught in eight American universities and has a 4.9 Amazon rating. And as always, I want to thank my amazing team, my webmaster, Randy Yant, and sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. I wish you all a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year and leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Mm -hmm.